Thank you for listening to sermons by Chaplain Braswell. This ministry desires to help people know and live for Christ through the preaching of God's Word. And now, today's message. It is good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. My name is Matt. I'm just one of the chaplains here and As we've shared with you, we've been going through the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a wonderful book. Nehemiah is literally a book where the identity of the country of Israel, the people of God, had been threatened and actually it had been lost. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles or your Bible app, one of the reasons why we actually don't display the verses on on the screen here is to encourage you all to be familiar with your Bible. Have you ever tried to use somebody else's Bible? And you're like, this feels weird. (laughs) Or if you have a Bible app, we want you to get familiar with that. It's almost like worship when I can hear the pages of the Bible being turned. I've been on leave for the past few days, and I like to grow facial hair to remind my the top of my head that it should be growing hair too. The older I get, the less it grows. My wife reminds me of that. And so I try to convince it to grow, just grow. Actually, in high school, I had a friend who really wanted facial hair, and so he put Rogaine on his face. And it worked, but he forgot to put Rogaine on the top of his lip. So he had all this hair, these big old sideburns growing, but... Nonetheless, as you might recall from last week's message, one of the points that Chaplain Bryant provided is God desires us to have a burden, to have a heaviness upon our heart to not just serve God, excuse me, not just serve God, but to serve His people. There should be a burden, not a burden of guilt which is from the devil, but a burden of conviction to be involved in the lives of other people, to preach the truth and to be involved. And you will see that again. Now, technically, I'm supposed to be preaching from starting in verse 9 of chapter 2 for the remainder of the chapter and then all of chapter 3. So please stand. I'm just kidding. I'm not going to read all of that, but we will read and study it And on the back of your bulletin, there's sermon notes with some fill-in-the-blanks. There will be a quiz at the end of the service. And if you take more notes than the person next to you, you get more points for heaven and all that good stuff. But please pray with me. Father God, you have provision this day to happen. And Lord, the world is filled with distractions. The world is constantly only getting faster. But I pray as we were just able to give you worship and praise of your faithfulness, your goodness, your mercy, that our life began because of your grace at the cross, that the world will simply slow down at this moment that we may be able to fully understand more of who you are, our great need for you, and importantly, 
the fact that you are a loving and caring God who desires your people, your church, to prosper. I pray that the message that you have laid upon my heart will be faithfully delivered, that I am not a distraction. And as a congregation, let us respond to it. And in your son's name do we pray. Amen. As we recall, Nehemiah was the cupbearer for the king. Nehemiah was a Hebrew. He was a Jewish man, but he was not in Jerusalem at this current time. He had taken, he was taken away with what was called historically the great uh, exiles of the Jews that Babylon conquered Israel because of Israel's and the Jewish people's lack of faithfulness to God. And so God allowed Babylon to take them over, and they were supposed to be exiles there for, for many decades, 60, 70 years. And so Nehemiah had not been home for a long time, and he was a cupbearer, which means he was the taste tester for the king. If the king's cup had been poisoned, Nehemiah would die instead of the king. Now that's a great job description. It's awesome. But it just so happened by the providence of the Lord that there were some Hebrew people that came across Nehemiah and Nehemiah asked them, hey, what's the status of our, of, of our hometown? And they said, hey, everything is in ruin. The walls have been burned down. The people are in great despair. We are basically the laughing stock amongst all the countries. And yet... We're talking about individuals, the nation that was called to be the people of God. And yet they were the laughing stock. And Nehemiah was overcome with grief. And he spent many days in prayer and he was saddened before the king. And you don't show emotions before the king. Because if you were a distraction within the king's court, you dishonored the king. And yet the king asked him, hey, Dude, I've known you for years now. Why are you so sad? And it just, boom, Nehemiah prayed. And he was honest and transparent with the king. And the king said, hey, what will you have of me to do about this? What do you want me to do? And Nehemiah, with the wisdom from the Lord, made his request known. And the king provided. He provided an armed escort, he provided letters of authority that saying that the walls of, ne of, of Jerusalem could be rebuilt. And ironically, it was the same king had destroyed it. But I want us to look at chapter 2 for a moment. And I want us to look at what Nehemiah does. From, ne from verse 9 all the way to verse 16, Nehemiah does two things. Initially, if you look at verse 9, he says, Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now that's important. If you believe in highlighting, highlight that right there. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen, but when Sambalat, the, the, hornet, the hornite, and uh, Tobiah, the servant, the Ammonite heard this. It displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. 
Now, how interesting is that? That Nehemiah's first confrontation of from local leaders was him trying to take care of the people. Now, that's interesting to me. Because from my understanding, the definition of true leadership is that leaders fight battles that the subordinates can't. That's why a leader steps into places and provides solutions to the problems. And yet there's two individuals here who was already displeased that somebody was seeking the welfare of the children of Israel. Now, from verse 11 through verse 16, Nehemiah spends three days. Now, remember, he's been out of Jerusalem for years. He doesn't quite know people. Okay? But in three days, he did a site survey of the walls of Jerusalem. And he mentions certain places. Let's briefly look at them, starting in verse 12, then I arose in the night. I had a few men with me, and I told no one what God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. So nobody understood why Nehemiah was walking about, and he did it over the cover of darkness. He did not want to cause attention, draw attention. And then in verse 13, I went out by night by the valley gate to the jackal's well and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem. Now he goes off and he lists a few places, the king's pond, the garden, and so forth. Ironically, or perhaps not ironically, but interestingly enough, all the locations that he mentions during this passage are all the southern parts of the city. And one of the reasons why most people believe this is the case is because the southern part was uh, easier to defend. The northern part was where most of the advances were. And if you ever have a map in the back of your Bible, if you can picture this in your mind, Israel itself was essentially a military-slash-trade highway. It was a lot easier to march your army around the Mediterranean Sea, on the eastern part of the sea, then loading up your entire army on boats that were not very large back then and try to sail across. And so one of the key historical points to note here is the reason why Jerusalem kept on being destroyed beyond their own disobedience to God is that it was a military and trade highway that was constantly sought after. And so the reason why the two individuals that we read earlier did not like the fact that the walls were about to be built up is because when you have a wall as a city, you are now a fortress. And as a fortress, you control what happens around you. They did not want that. Because as a fortress, you can grow in defense, you can grow in influence, you can grow in power. And that threatens the status quo. Notice that he came at night and notice that he told no one of what he was doing. Now I want us to look at verse 17 and notice what Nehemiah does with his observations. 
Then I said to them, the people around him, you see the trouble we are in. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer what? Disgrace. Now, some versions may be a little different than mine. I am reading from the RSV. However, the whole purpose of rebuilding the wall is so that there could be a sense of dignity for the people of God. And I will challenge us as a church, do you have a certain dignity as a Christian? Do we have a sense of not selfish pride, but do we carry ourselves knowing that as the New Testament says, and as the Bible teaches, do not be afraid, for the Lord your God is with you. You see, Nehemiah knew, and he could observe, that the people there were living, and they were suffering through disgrace. We've come to our first point, and our first point is this. When God places burdens in our heart, that's to fill in the blank there, burdens in our heart, we should take time to meditate and be alone. We see this example in the New Testament as Jesus, very often, even though he hand-chose his disciples, removed himself away from them at times to pray. What do we do in our quiet hours of the day? Do you have any? (laughs) I have two young kids. And if I have the perspective that I don't have much quiet time, I sure believe my wife doesn't feel like she has much quiet time either. When you feel that initial tug in your heart that is caused by the Spirit, what do you do with that initial tug? Have you ever acted upon it and was blown away by how God used that moment? Then have you ever not acted upon it and then was immediately filled with this wisdom of saying, I should have really have done that. Next time. Next time I'll do it. Next time I'll be more faithful. Whatever you want to say. And the second part to this is, and then engage the world without any hesitation, fully believing that God has made the way. As Brother Drew read the scripture reading from Luke chapter 9, Jesus is set and calling people to follow him, and yet everybody gave them excuses. Well, let me bury the dead. Let me do this. Let me do that. And then finally Jesus says, anyone who puts their hand to the plow to sow seed and yet looks back is not worthy of the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not arrogant enough to believe that if God has placed a burden on my heart, and if I do not answer that call, I'm not arrogant to believe that the whole world is going to suddenly blow up. Or that God's plan is not going to somehow come into fruition. I am a believer. If I fail to act on what God has laid upon my heart, I will not have a simple joy of God in my life. I am constantly trying to be just like those individuals who gave Jesus excuses of why I can't do something. 
I'm not smart enough. I'm not ready enough. I'm not holy enough. Beloved, if you feel that tug in your heart to do something and yet believe that your past is the reason why you can't, beloved, do you not know that when Paul writes, the old has passed away and the new has come. Let us have full confidence, therefore, with a humble courage, with great reassurance, that as we just sang, His mercy is more. Not much depends upon us. Matter of fact, Nehemiah, I don't think his prerequisite to any of this was that he knew how to build a wall. I don't think that that's who Jesus called. I don't think that God's prerequisite, well, if you're going to be a prophet, if you're going to be this, you have to be this. The only thing that God requires for us is to come to Him in it with a repentant heart. And God will always make the way. Nehemiah, Nehemiah takes this site survey. He takes time to be alone. He takes time to reflect. And then he acts. He says to the people, hey, look, we're suffering in disgrace. Let us do this thing. He doesn't even explain exactly how it's going to happen. All he says in verse 18, and I told them of the hand of my God, which had been upon me for good, and also for the words which the king had spoken to me. So Nehemiah affirms to the leaders there, not only have I been a, a, a conviction of the heart from God to do this, but the earthly king has provided us the authority to do it. How do they respond? Look at this. In the lower half of verse 18, it says, And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. They responded and they strengthened their hands knowing that the task was going to be hard. Knowing that it wasn't as if they were just going to walk out the chapel and, and grab those small, smooth stones and be like, yeah, this is going to be just like building Legos. It's going to be a hard work. These were massive rocks. They were going to have to dedicate time and energy and effort. But they strengthened their hands. My father told me that there are three different types of people. The first type of people... They understand that there's a problem with the world, with something, but they don't care enough. They don't, they're not smart enough. They doubt whether or not they can be part of the solution, and so they just don't do anything. They just turn a blind eye, and ignorance is bliss. And they just think, okay, this is, this is as good as it's going to get. Then he shared with me that there's... Another group of people, they're less common, but there's a lot of them. And they see the problem. They believe that they think that they have a solution for it. And they try very hard to solve it. But eventually what happens? They give up. They burn out. And they're like, ah, I did what I could do. I gave a good try. Now it's time for somebody else. And then he taught me that the most rarest kind of people, 
and the very few of them all are ones that know exactly what the problem is. They believe that they understand the solution for it. And for the rest of their entire life, do nothing but try to fix it. And he said, Matt, those are very rare people. But those people only can do it with the help and the strength of God. You see, what happens when we are faithful with what God has placed upon our heart is that the world is going to very quickly look at you as being different. Before we go on, I want you all to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. And I want you to kind of place a mark there because we're going to reference that quite a bit. 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's look real quickly back at Nehemiah. I'm going to share with you how 1 Peter comes into being with this. Look at how those two leaders again respond to what Nehemiah shares with them in verse 19. But when Sambalat the Horni and Tobiah the, the servant, the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they derided us, they mocked us, they made fun of us, they, re, they ridiculed us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Now, that's really a dumb question. Has anybody ever told you that there's no such thing as dumb questions? There really are. There's dumb people in the world too, but there are dumb questions. There's questions that you really don't need to answer. Because if we recall the place before that I asked you all to underline in verse 9, Nehemiah already showed them the letters from the king. Already showed them the authority that, that was given to him to do this thing. And yet these three people are trying to cause doubt in what authority they were given. Look at what they say. What is this thing that you are doing? Now let's look at what Nehemiah says in verse 20. Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right, no lot, no heritage, no inheritance, or memorial in Jerusalem. What Nehemiah, he says two things with this. One, when way back when, in the book of Deuteronomy and, and the Pentateuch, the first five books of the, of, of the Old Testament, there are 12 tribes, 12 tribes, 12 Jewish tribes, and just as they were about to enter into the promised land, which Jerusalem is, Israel is, God said, I want you to divide up the 12 tribes land and give to these 12 tribes according to the size of the tribe. Now, if you had a large tribe, for instance, like the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Benjamin, they were given a larger portion. Okay? What Nehemiah is literally saying, now we know that there's an Arab there, as it, as it just mentions, but the other two people are from Samaria. Neither three of those people have any inheritance to the land of Israel, and yet they were there dictating that they had authority. Let me tell you something, beloved. God has authority in your life, 
And we cannot forget that the authority of the outside world, the distractions of the world, has no place or belonging in what God has called us to do. Nehemiah calls them out. You have no right to be here. You have no inheritance. You gain nothing from this. Be quiet. Nehemiah understands that our point two makes sense. God will always make his people prosper. You think about all the times that the Jewish people have been persecuted. Beloved, I will tell you today, the fact that the nation of Israel still exists is a testimony that God is a promise keeper. Out of all the generations and decades that the churches have gone under persecution, that is going under persecution now. There is no reason why the church exists today if it wasn't for the fact that it is God himself who builds it. Nehemiah understands that his earthly authority in order to do this comes from the king. But who's going to make it work and flourish? Just as the call to worship this morning. If the Lord doesn't build the house, the laborers labor in vain. I'll tell you, me as a husband and as a father, I will utterly fail at both. If I do not seek the Lord to help me build my house. As a chaplain, my wisdom and my counsel, my internal advisement is nothing but the book of opinions. If it is not seeking wisdom from the Lord. Nehemiah says the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we his servants will arise and build. There is nothing for us to do. But to be obedient in the calling. How do we know then beloved? How do we know? That we are not only the people of God, but the burdens that the Lord has given to us are good and holy. Well, let's flip to 1 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to describe this. It also describes the church. Look at verse 9, starting in verse 9 of 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, but you are a chosen what? Race. A holy what? Priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, that you may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 10, once you were no people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received it. Now look at verse 11. This is what gives us clarity to what God has called us to do. Beloved, I beseech you, as aliens and exiles, do you see that? To abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. Maintain good conduct among the Gentiles. So that in case they speak against you as wrongdoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation when Jesus Christ returns. How does Nehemiah know that what he's doing is good and faithful? A, the earthly leadership gave that provision to do so. So you know that this was far beyond any speech that Nehemiah could have given. How is it that a king who just had destroyed the city of Jerusalem is now granting permission for it to be rebuilt? Doesn't make any logical sense. And yet God softened the king's heart in order for this to happen. But look, Nehemiah is calling a distinction. 
There are those who are on God's team, who are obedient to God, who is within the church, not the visible church, not just the people who show up, but the invisible church, the people who have a repented heart and know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That Nehemiah is saying, listen, there's people who are going to do this thing and there's people who are going to be against us. There's no middle ground. What Nehemiah is trying to share with us is that as soon as you do the good work of God, Satan will always come to disrupt and distract it. And therefore, there's going to be different sides. And if we as a church try to assimilate so much, there is no distinction. There is no royal priesthood. There is no holy nation. The word holy literally means to set apart. And if we believe that we prosper because of our good works, what then point is the cross? Peter reminds us that not only have we been chosen, but we have called to be set apart. And with being set apart, God will make us prosper. God will make us prosper. And when we have a calling, when we have that tug at our heart, and if we simply do it, pray, have the practice that Nehemiah has shown us, Remove yourself from the world. Remove yourself from distractions. That means you got to stop watching TikTok for a minute. I know. I know. You might miss out on something on social media. Remove yourself. Set yourself apart and pray, Lord God. I was a retail business manager, and I very quickly became, when I became a retail business manager, I very quickly prayed. I said, Dear Lord, please let this not be. The ultimate plan for me. I had a calling to be in business. I love business. I love customer service, as hard as that might be to believe. But I was really feeling called to be in the ministry. And I kept on fighting against it because then I was telling God, I said, God, there's a whole lot of people in the church, and I don't like people. I'm not a people person. I just don't like them. They're sinful. I don't want to talk to them. I'm going to have to talk to all these people. And then, what if I make a mistake? Is somebody going to judge me for doing wrong? And I could not sleep at night. And finally, I prayed. I said, God, you know I like sleep. If you want me to do this, pave the way and help me be obedient to what you would have me to do. And that's it. You know, we complicate prayers. But God always hears the prayers of a genuine prayer. Just keep it simple. God, I feel like this calling is on me. Lord, please, please pave the way. And that's literally what I did. I, I paved the way. I, I, I prayed that prayer, and God paved the way. The very next day, there were certain things. I don't have time to share everything, but there were certain things that were undeniable, the handiwork of God. And here I am. You're looking at somebody who used to have a speech impediment. You're looking at somebody who used to stammer and stutter all the way through high school. I still do. I re-say everything in my mind before I speak it, which stinks because I can never use the excuse that I didn't think before I spoke. But I literally do that to slow my mind down. I seriously doubt my ability to be in the military. I was 300 pounds. I was morbidly obese. My best two-mile run time was 19 minutes. Not going to fit that boat. I lived in western Kentucky. There were horse, uh, um, what's it called? horse tracks. 
I literally run on a horse track because it was shorter, fewer rat, uh, laps. And I was like, well, if I do two, it's simpler than doing four. Still, I said, oh, God, if you've called me to do this, help me love what I have to do. And boom, and boom. Listen, beloved, the prophet of Joel says, I do not require sacrifice, but I do require obedience. God calls us to be obedient believers. He doesn't call us to do exactly the same thing. He doesn't call us to copy and paste ministries. He calls us to be faithful. Micah 6.8 says one of the most quoted verses. He has shown you what is good. Oh man. To love mercy, seek justice, uh, justice, and walk humbly with your God. Beloved, if you have ever been caught thinking, well, what will God have me to do with my life? Pray. Remove yourself and then act because He will cause you to prosper through that obedience. Turn really quickly to 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that in due time He may exalt you. Beloved, what religion teaches us that if we are humble, if we are obedient, then the creator of the universe, the creator of you and I, is going to exalt us in glory. But it takes us being humble. And then look at verse 7. Cast all your anxiety, or some versions, some translations will say, cast your cares upon Him, because why? He cares for you. Beloved, if the Lord has put a burden on your heart, then I encourage you, to be obedient in listening to that burden, praying, seek the counsel of another wise believer. But if we ignore it, we will grow more and more further away from God. It is almost like our heart will slowly begin to feel less and less and less. Because we lack the joy of the journey that God has called us to be. You might think, well, you may not have enough time to do something. You may not have the right resources to do it. How can God make me prosper? Well, I want us to look at verse 3. The point of verse 3 is this. The people of God should remember to live, serve, and act like the people of God. The whole reason why Nehemiah is there to begin with is because the people of God, the chosen people of God, began to look like everybody else. Because God the Father had called the entire nation of Israel to be a holy nation. And they lost that division. They lost what was unique about them. And they began to assimilate to the rest of the world. And what happened? God let the walls of Jerusalem be destroyed. Beloved, I tell you, do we have the dignity to build a wall? Do we find comfort in disgrace? Do we find comfort of being average and normal and common? Well, I don't want to cause attention to myself. It is Jesus has taught us to be as, as wise as a serpent and gentle as a dove as we daily interact with others. But also in the book of Colossians, it says, let your words be seasoned with salt so that you know how to answer every question. 
Our time on earth is precious. And beloved, whether you are single or married, it does not matter. With kids, without kids. Maybe you've struggled, maybe if you still struggle with depression and guilt and the burdens of your soul, God is still has a unique plan and calling for your life. And when we live, act, and serve like the chosen people of God, He will make you prosper in ways that you can never fathom. When I was younger, I always gave a justification of why I can't do something. Well, I'm in college, and I'm going to graduate from college, and why invest in building a community in college? When I moved to Western Kentucky and I was a retail manager, I became partners with the church and, and really focused on working with the youth as a single man. And lo and behold, one family that really took, uh, 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 we took a liking to each other, the mother had been praying for a godly man to help shepherd their kids. They were a Christian family. But I'll tell you, even my Christian family needs help from time to time. Do we have the dignity to build a wall or do we find comfort in disgrace? Hey, here's our modern day application. Modern day application is as First Peter calls us to be a holy nation. Let's, let's go try and build a visible wall around every single Christian family. And how well is that going to work? It's not going to work, right? And so us, as parents, as adults, even kids, the wall that we build is understanding of what First Peter says Cast out these fleshly desires to build walls to, def to defend our heart. As the Old Testament says, as for me and my house, we shall serve the Lord. Our reputation should be known as such. Is there a distinction between you and the neighbors around you? And the encouragement is, if you don't know how to be that distinction, pray and live faithfully. Going back to the practice of Nehemiah, if you as a man believes, well, I just want my kids to be better than me. Hey, that's passive leadership. Your kids can easily be better than you. If you teach them, if you show them why they need to be better than you. If you are a mother and you struggle with whether or not you're doing what is right and good, I pray that you have a community of mothers that can go around you and lift you up and encourage you. But God has not called us to be individual islands. He has called us to be a holy nation. And we should have a distinction. How do we know what those distinctions are? It goes back to the very first point. What are the convictions that have been laid upon your heart? And what has God already dictated for us to be against? Let's pray. Father God, I pray for pray for our congregation that as we live in this world that we do not forget our identity, that you have called us out of darkness, that you have called us out of shame, that you have called us out of guilt and depression. And though we may struggle with all those things, you have provided liberty, personal freedom for our souls and let us live so with a gentle courage, but with a bold courage to be different in this world, to be those aliens, to be those exiles that First Peter teaches us, to know that whenever we are different, that the world is going to treat us differently. And that may be the very confirmation of our faith that we need. 
Lord, I pray for the leaders before us that they are strong with convictions of their faith to serve boldly. I pray for the families represented here that there will be great unity. Lastly, I pray for our church, our chapel, that we as a community can be unified with the joy of salvation and that we seek the welfare of each other and those around us. And in your son's name do we pray. Amen.